0: As I'm sitting here tonight, I'm trying to work out a title for this evening's talk. And it's coming uh, to something of the flavor of uh, the complications of a self-idea, complications of self-view or the complications of a self-idea and as i start this talk i'm uh, looking at all of you right now and seeing the I may not feel like it from the inside but what i'm seeing is the fruits of your practice uh, i think maybe sharda alluded to this that you're likely more here now and there's something uh, very beautiful about all of us being just here together uh, and it is as She was mentioning last night so beautifully how when we begin to uh, come out of the, um, the, our resistance and all the ways that we, as one poet put it, all the ways that we run from silence, Um, we start to recover a certain kind of vitality and I can actually see a little bit of the, the light coming back into your eyes and that's something that as a As people who support uh, yogis on retreats, we, over the years, I'll just speak for myself, I have just marveled at this very simple, yet profound process of stopping, keeping still, and of course moving, but moving in that way where you're not moving, where you're staying right where you are, and how quite naturally this this flower uh, begins to blossom and the light begins to come into the eyes and the the kind of tenderness that's really beautiful. And so as I was sitting here, I was reminded of of the um, two passages that float through my mind a lot. And one of them is from Rumi, where he asks, why do you stay in prison? when the door is so wide open. Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? And the second one that I share at, at most of the retreats that I've led, because it was really important to me when I heard this teaching, was a. Passage from a Tibetan teacher named Noshul Kempo where he he sings, Rest in natural great peace, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. Like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. So in both of these passages, the cry is to wake up. In the first one, wake up out of the tangle of fear thinking and to live in silence. And quite naturally, as we begin to live in silence, wading through all the the residue, the, the fruit of how um, of the tangle of fear thinking and the effect that it has had on our bodies, slowly, slowly, our ring of being widens and widens. And uh, we start to feel that sense of vitality, a little light comes in. And when Sharda was talking about vitality last night, I was thinking of, the, of a teacher named Nisargadatta who says, reality, she was talking about coming back to reality, reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future is merely mental. If I talked all night about about the past and some teachings and what happened here and there, you would slowly, I would slowly, (laughs) I would slowly start to just lose my juice. And perhaps you would too. But if I, on the other hand, talk about what's happening in the room here, where we let yesterday go and let tomorrow go, do you notice any kind of quickening, any kind of a, a different kind of aliveness that comes into the room? Is that just me or is, is it you? So different from past and future that are merely mental. Reality is what makes the present so vital. So you've been doing this, whether you know it or not, you've been. You've been coming out of the tangle of fear thinking in these simple moments of mindful awareness and presence, and spreading out into wider rings of being. And you've been, in the moments of mindfulness, resting in natural great peace. I don't mean necessarily a special feeling of feeling peaceful. That's ebbing and flowing. But what's most natural to us? when we are in touch with the vitality of the present, and we're not looking back, and we're not looking ahead, we're not referring to our past experience or our future worries, um, there is a what could be called an unnatural great peace. So easily overlooked, so easily missed, because of the, both the tangle of fear thinking and because we, we fail to notice it, because we have been, all of us, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like that relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. There's this, it speaks to how, what is samsara? What is what is the tangle of fear thinking? It is really that dance of, of uh, this amazing dance of thinking that goes, in on our mi- that goes on in our minds. What is it that, that, um, that clouds our perception of this natural great peace or this widening ring of being? Other than our, um, you could call it, misidentification with the, that virtual world of ourselves that plays in our mind. All of you familiar now, I imagine that you are, after a few days of practice, a little bit more familiar with, I call it, the story of me. The how am I doing story. When I look at you, and I felt it the same thing when I came in the room tonight, and it often strikes me after people have been practicing for, for a few days, or really, any time it strikes me when I look around the room and I see each of you, uh, I'll give you a little background on this this feeling that comes over me. I am, as Sharda mentioned, I'm a, a father to a five and a half year old. And when she was, I guess, about one year old, I just saw that this little being was just so much herself, just had a, her name is Molly, and she has um, what I call Molliness. She has a Molly essence. And I've been struck for her whole lifetime that she is just so essentially Molly. A perfectly unique and individual expression of life. And this is what we what you could call an essential being. I don't think this is what the Buddha was concerned about. What the Buddha was concerned about was not who each of you is as you sit here in the room right now, your immediate experience that really could never quite be captured by any idea or a thought or a story. What could you really say, could you say anything that accurately takes in your immediate experience right now, the fullness of your experience? What can you really say about yourself right now in complete truth without reference to memory or what somebody told you? What can you say? likely you can just say maybe I am, or I'm here, I'm conscious, present, I'm full, or whatever. I'm curious, is anybody willing to say what your experience is? What what you could say? I am me. I am me. Please. My knees are sore. My knees are sore. (laughs) Pretty simple, isn't it? My knees are sore. This version is not an issue. What is at issue is that completely, uh, I'll call it, that version that plays in our mind, that, that version of ourselves that is the version of someone who does not really exist. That one who you imagine yourselves to be, that what we call the self view, the self idea, is really secondhand. And yet, what tends to diminish our sense of vitality, because that one, what is true about that view? It's all about somebody who's here, going there, and not doing such a good job of it, and and very worried about whether he or she is going to get there. Each of us compelled in this internal drama to get from here to the end of the rainbow with happiness and success. It's so innocent. We all want to be happy. And yet that one who you imagine yourself to be, where is he or she right now in this moment, after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises? We can talk about that, that, that longing one within you, that desirous one within you in romantic terms, but more often than not, that that version of ourselves that we often follow so intently and so religiously uh, is um, is a kind of tormented version of ourselves, one that has some flavor of, and I think we've been repeating this in different ways, some flavor of there's something wrong, something wrong with me. Now, what about as we sit here together, what about the evidence right now that there's something wrong with you? I know that you've, like me, I've had, I've had a real, I've had various versions of that playing through my mind a lot. But whenever I look carefully in real time, where's the evidence? but it's a marvel, and part of our practice is to be able to see how it is that we move from this, our own version of molliness, or whatever your version is, just our essential being, a unique expression of life, that taking nothing away from our individuality, how we move from that into this profound drama of the the seeker, of the dissatisfied one, of the one who's bound in time, who's bound in a body that's getting old, that's bound in a a mind that's always changing, it's bound at time that's always running out. But when we actually look for that that one, um, in real time, present evidence, what do we find? What's your experience right now, after your last thought has of yourself has ceased and before the next one arises? Anybody willing to say, other than knee pain, Is it hard to speak or are you shy or is it the East Coast? or? (laughs) Please. After my last thought, then it's emptiness. There's nothing there. Okay, emptiness. Next thought. Emptiness. So the story that I have is sort of over until I pick it up again. You know what Emerson said about this moment? I actually brought it along tonight. He says, What you are. Shout so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And Rumi says out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Did any of you have, how can I say this? Did any of you get to know the story of of a more clear version of your self story today? Did you see any repeating themes? I'm not something enough. (laughs) I'm too much of something. Or, out there is too much of something. It's too quiet, I'm I'm too noisy, whatever it is. I'm just, again, I'm struck by just how simple in some way, how beautiful each one of us is and just our being here. And I'm reminded of the passage from Henry Audubon, where he says, if there is a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. (laughs) So, Doug, when you mentioned, after the last thought has ceased and before the next one, there's openness. Dujim Rinpoche, one of my favorite teachers, used to say, Notice how after your last thought has ceased and before the next arises, is there not a vivid clarity without anything in particular to see, a bare freshness? And then he sings out, he says, ho, this is awareness. He says, but we don't stay there, do we? He says, Isn't it true that suddenly a thought arises? And if this thought is recognized, I'm partly why I'm talking about this, is because we're about to enter into the phase of the retreat where we discuss a little bit more intimately, or we, we start to practice with and discuss more intimately the whole world of thinking. But he says, if this thought is noticed as it arises, it, it is recognized as just an expression of that awareness and no problem. But if this thought is not noticed, goes unnoticed, it spreads out into what he calls ordinary thinking, which he calls the chain of delusion because very without any prompting at all, this one thought, depending on how it emerges, and it's fascinating, you can begin to see how these thoughts tend to emerge, but with how it, depending on how it emerges, it, when it goes unnoticed, it spawns this intense waterfall, this flywheel of thoughts. It's said that from just simple moments of experience, simple thoughts, we spawn literally 65,000 thoughts a day. It's an interesting statistic. I don't know if it's true. (laughs) And according to the statistics, that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. (laughs) But it spreads out into somehow these 65,000 individual thoughts, disparate thoughts, somehow get called together into this, this imaginary version of ourselves. And of course, because why is it called the chain of delusion? Because we start to take that imaginary version to be the reality. As one of our, our um, teachers, uh, in fact, the teacher for Joseph Goldstein, Anagarika Munindra, one of the ways he put it, where he said, a thought of your mother is not your mother. Somehow we t- the same is true of ourselves. A thought of ourselves is not ourselves. but somehow when that thought goes unnoticed, spreads out into ordinary thinking, we fall into that chain of delusion, taking this concept about ourselves, story, to be the reality, and what is missed in that process. The good news about our practice is we can begin to wake up out of this uh, chain of delusion. We can't necessarily stop these waves, and that's not the purpose of practice, to delete or get rid of these self-ideas and self-stories but to make that very simple yet profound and challenging shift from being carried along by that stream of delusion, that shift from being carried along to waking up and noticing, ah, this is a self story. This is a a particular kind of thought stream. Just to back up a little bit, this doesn't happen by accident. It starts in a very simple way, this spawning of all these 65,000 thoughts. It starts in simple moments of sense experience, and this could be deconstructed or unpacked, and we could spend weeks doing this, but in the most simple way, it starts with one of our senses. Something is seen with the eye, heard with the ear, smelled with the nose, tasted with the tongue, felt with the body. Some little thought emerges. And every one of these little sense experiences produces a little feeling with it. It's part of our conditioning. Is we experience a smell or a, a sight as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes called neutral. But we'll put aside the neutral for a moment, let's just talk about the pleasant and the unpleasant. When an experience is experienced as pleasant, it produces immediately a charge, especially if we're not keenly mindful at that moment, produces a little charge of liking. Ah, I like that, liking. If it's unpleasant, don't like that. And depending on, you know, for one person, the, um, for example, the smell of horse manure. You even hear this, that sound in your mind. For some of you, it will produce a, a pleasant association. For some, an unpleasant association. So this is a feeling tone, a little, a little valence that comes with that thought or with that feeling, with that smell that you may cross, uh, you go by the, the garden down the street that we, I passed on near Gaston Pond today. Somebody had just gotten some new, or some manure for their garden. Immediate unpleasant association, produces a charge, of "Mm." don't particularly like that. And that liking, that not liking, if it goes unnoticed, it then is followed by a reaction of aversion. And if that gets repeated over and over, that little reaction hardens into a kind of addictive pattern that produces tension, grasping the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, produces tension. And that tension then builds pressure. There's an in, there's a natural impulse to release that pressure. And the way that pressure releases, this is, again, just one way of talking about it, is it releases through the spawning of, as we feel this tension, it releases as a, uh, Compulsion to think, and before you know it, our mind has taken off in a story about that smell is funky. I have to get away from it. It's the reason for my unhappiness. And if only that smell went away, then I'd be I'd be okay. Any of you have any versions of that on the retreat? We have the the positive side. Pleasant association, like it, I want it, and then I've got to have it and it comes of course, you veterans all know this. it comes in the form on retreat of what's called the v r the Vipassana romance, where there's someone in the retreat who lights your who you see them, how they walk, the kinds of shoes they wear, or the just the just that je ne sais quoi, whatever it is, <laughs> produces a pleasant feeling, there's a liking, and before you know it, the, the, the blast of fantasy, imagination of dating and mating and children and marriage and divorce and travel and, and what's true really. What is really true on present evidence? Nothing really happened. Nothing except this incredible drama in our mind. This is, this tendency toward, toward um, just the spawning of so much thinking, this tendency of mind to just go off in, um, in this kind of blast is called papancha. Papancha, sometimes loosely translated as a proliferation. A simple moment proliferates into something much more dramatic in our mind. Sometimes it's called complication. Uh, here's a few traditional definitions for the word papancha. This is something that we can begin to notice, shifting from being just carried along by this stream of reactivity or habit, to noticing, isn't this interesting, what my mind is doing right now? So here's another, some definitions of papancha. The unbidden going of the mind away from present reality to imagined experiences or objects. Not so sexy, is it? Here's a different one. The propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. (laughs) Propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. The fascinating thing about this uh, amazing drama that we can be carried along in, you know, if the, just before I g- go into describing this a little more, that the flip side of the, of the VR is what we call the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, <laughs> where something or someone triggers an aversive response. and disliking, aversion, and the pressure of that contraction. And then before you know it, this intense story about how that person is the reason or that situation is the reason for your suffering. And, uh, and I know I, I had not a VV, but I had a, a, a very, very difficult time with a, a Burmese Dharma teacher back in the 80s who I practiced with who who um, some would say he practiced Stone Age psychology, but others thought that he was a master at seeing where people were stuck. And with me, he must have thought I was somehow inflated in some ways. So the way he worked with me was when I would walk into the room to report my experience to him, which is the style that we did, he would at first just tell me how wonderful I was until he he got me. After that, when I would walk into the room to make my reporting, sometimes he would just pick up a book and start reading, pretend I wasn't there. Then, when I would finally report and get his attention, every word out of my mouth he'd shake his head, as though I was the biggest idiot that ever walked into his <laughs> interview room. And this triggered, obviously, a. Uh, unpleasant feeling, dislike, and then the spawning of this view about myself, first of all, as harmed, diminished. And, of course, none of us likes to feel diminished in any way. And how do we defend against that as we go right into, uh, at least for me, I went into revenge fantasies. How there was no way he would talk to me that way again and how I was, you know. And this this was my version of of a kind of proliferation of thought about him. Uh, what really happened in all of that? He picked up a book and started reading. Or he shook his head when I said words. That was the what-so. The rest was a, a version of what the Buddha called Sakyaditi, self-view, the self-idea, the story of me, the drama of me. And This is the world of papancha, of the proliferation of thought. And just to back up a little bit, in reality, something that we can all see for ourselves, the difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, in reality, there are just six experiences, ever. There is just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, consciousness of these coming and going. The rest is a story, and you can see how far we get from the bird, how far we get from the simplicity of our experience. And what our practice allows us to begin to do is not so much only be in contact with with, uh, existence or the the bird, just the, the simple sense experience, but to begin to see the difference between the bird and the field guide book and not be so fooled, not be so lost in the field guide book, and the the endless, painful process of trying to get it right, because it is the nature of the self idea, the self story. It is in the it's the central theme of the drama that um, that right is some other time. So there is an endless waiting for a future that never arrives. Because we discover in our practice that time is always now. This is why Alan Watts says that the purpose of meditation is to arrive in the present moment, not to get somewhere. He says it's not not unlike dancing or playing music. You don't dance in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor, as in taking a journey. When you dance, and he said when you dance, then it would obviously mean that the fastest dancers would be the best. or the, You don't do it in order to get to the end of the, comp- the composition if you're playing music. Fastest players would be the best. The idea is to arrive right where you are. Same in meditation. So we can begin to see this process, what the Buddha called Papancha, that it manifests this and the the self-idea that it creates, the drama of myself that goes on in my mind, the one who I suggest does not really exist, that that drama, there are three kinds of dramas, you could say, that our mind plays. The first one that I've already described to some degree is what he called tanha papancha, which is, the, which is the proliferation of thoughts about what we want or what we don't want, how much time that we can live in someone was admitting to me or talking to me yesterday how they feel when they get carried away and the desire for the next pleasurable thing. Even though desires are often associated with a pleasant feeling, there's an underlying feeling of, of not okayness. If we really checked, and that's something that's, we have the option in our practice, we could be off on a, on a pleasant fantasy about going to, planning our next vacation. It's one of my tendencies is to plan the next time off as though I'm gonna be happier <coughs> then. Whenever I really check to see if that's true, it's uh, my vacations, I'm never happier than I am, it, but my mind will create this enormous fantasy. But if, if I'm able to notice in the middle of it that I'm fantasizing and check in with the underlying universe of the impact, the felt sense of what's left with the wanting mind, I often feel a little agitated, like, hmm, I wonder if my vacation's really going to be that good. And I'm often then in a slight state of worry because my happiness has then been tethered to the future. and. I don't know whether it's going to work out. And what has lost in the process? I've lost a sense of presence. It's not the problem that I'm thinking. It's the problem that I've lost consciousness that I was thinking. When you begin to pay attention to this, you, as you probably notice, you, most people that come on retreat cannot believe how much we think. The uh, Bhante Gunaratna put it really beautifully when he said, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and helpless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. <laughs> it has always been this way and you never noticed. But just think of some of the aversion fa- some of the aversion fantasies are are so funny and one of them I brought along to read to you. The a woman wants some potatoes for the meal she's cooking so she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. As he walks out the door she calls after him, be sure to get a good price. So all the way to the marketplace, the man is thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. If he buys the best potato, the very best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys lesser quality potatoes. On the other hand, the lesser quality potatoes are just that, not so good. In fact, he knows he'll have to be very careful in buying other than top-priced potatoes because the seller might try to stick him with a bad potato, even a rotten potato. Then he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, and he gets really mad. Why do people have to be so greedy and stick me with a rotten potato? Just at this point, he reaches the stall of the potato seller and screams at him, you can keep your rotten potatoes, and walks off. But others have wisely taken their Tanha their Papancha in terms of pleasant fantasies into poignant poetry, such as the, the words of, of um, George Bilger uh, in his poem called Unwise Purchases. And it's a little bit lengthy, but I think you might appreciate this movement of mind. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything. The boxed set of complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet, and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the universe or heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remained unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them and that by tape six or so they're happily married and raising a a bilingual child in Seville, Sevilla or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman, the man I've always dreamed of becoming, has always dreamed of meeting. (laughs) And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. We have to have a sense of humor about (laughs) our wanting minds. The the proliferation, the complication of our life in the world of desire. And of course, in the world of aversion. If we could smile at our revenge and aversive fantasies, what a different world our inner atmosphere and our outer atmosphere would be and this is the this is the the potential the this is that creative potential that comes in that when we open that field of awareness when there is presence when we are carried along by the stream of of these dramas they they produce a lot of physical tension and it's partly why we are so worn out because we have lost that the natural vitality that nothing as one of my Teachers put it, nothing can make us happier than we are fundamentally. That all search for happiness elsewhere is misery and leads to more misery. That That only happiness worth that name is the happiness of being conscious. And just as we've spoken about before, when we're caught in these um, streams, not noticing them, we we live in a kind of suspended happiness, a suspended well-being, waiting, maybe. This is what Sri Nisargadatta said, As long as we believe we need things to be happy, to make us happy, this is part of our mind training. So think that's what we've been doing. We've been mind training the wanting mind. As long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its belief. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of all sadhana, that means practice, is to reach a point when this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual ever-present experience. This is the reality that we've been pointing to. Which experience? The experience of being empty, open, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in openness and nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. The second kind of proliferation is the second kind of uh, proliferation of of thoughts that create a view about ourselves as uh, usually one that is lacking is called um, diti papancha. Ditti means view. I, the general, the overarching view that spawns all of these is called uh, is called or self-view. But one of the expressions of that is called diti papancha. All the thoughts that we have about uh, views. Views about ourselves, views about others, views, uh, views and opinions about everything. How much self ideas there are that get generated around our views about our um, political views, our religious views, our all the various views that we have that that form that self idea and build that monument to the one who really is imaginary, and how because it's imaginary, because it's dependent on thoughts, it's inherently insecure, and that insecurity produces more tension, and then it spawns even more thoughts of self, more attempts to try to secure that uh, that inherently insecure one who lives within us. Kabir states this kind of um, simply in his poem where he says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings And now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to to one thing. What does it hold on to? It holds on to these self-ideas of the past. This idea. And when we, think of, when we think of giving up this self-idea and really letting ourselves sink into reality, it scares us a little bit. As though somehow if we just drop for a moment that view of ourselves, that somehow we will just vanish into thin air. Anybody ever have that? fear? Yeah. But in fact, we give it up every day. The times when we're just doing what we're doing, most ourselves, functioning best, we're not busy thinking about ourselves over and over and over. We're just in the flow of life. We're outside of the past. There's a sutra called the Avatamsaka Sutra that says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. so different from the living in the views that are always based on uh, the past. A teacher named Punjaji put it this way: "You need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by finding the source of this I thought. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future, because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your essential being, your true nature, you will be disturbed by holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. And Hafiz puts it this way, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and go and often go there to a, do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. One day, a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the, the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of the spiritual humility, joins the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The sheamus, who was the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the others, too, on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, at which time the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian, and said, look who thinks he's nobody. everybody attached to some view of self. (laughs) The rabbi, the cantor, all these these roles, these gender, all of that, they're all beautiful, all these different identities that we build monuments to, build stories about. But they're really just approximations, can never capture your version of molliness. intrinsic beauty. The part that's not busy needing improvement. That one doesn't really exist, that one who's not okay. There's a cartoon that goes around, it's called The Checklist to Feeling Pathetic. And this leads to the uh, I could go on and on about views, the self view and views and opinions. But uh, the third, because we're running out of time, the third, and perhaps one of the most tormenting, but one, of the, uh, one that gives us some of the best opportunity to step out of the tangle of fear thinking, to, um, to see the difference between the bird and the field guide book, is the, is the kind of papancha or complication or proliferation called mana papancha. Mana is the word in Pali for pride or conceit, and is most often used in describing the activity of our mind that we call comparing. The comparing mind, you're sitting quietly, you start to feel really restless. So you're feeling restless, you look over, and you see someone sitting pristinely still. And your mind says, doesn't say, they're sitting still. I'm feeling restless. It says, they're sitting still. I'm feeling restless. They're a better yogi than me. And that they're a better yogi than me. I've incarnated as the not good yogi. I've taken birth in that little drama. And before you know it, that little drama has spawned uh, a narrative of doubt, a reason why I can't be happy, and before you know it, it becomes I'm feeling restless, I always feel restless, or the last retreat I felt restless, it seems like my whole life is restless, <laughs> my whole life is a failure, they're getting enlightened, and I'm getting miserable, And and what really happened? This is this is mana papancha, the, the proliferation of thought around comparing. This uh, checklist of feeling pathetic uh, cartoon. Choose someone and compare them yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror. Note all flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> this is, goes beyond comparing. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. Resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. (laughs) But the comparing mind is so common in meditation circles. Because all of us, like I've been saying, have this innocent longing, this innocent desire to, to be free and to be better than we were, or better than we think we are. And it, it keeps us in that state of restlessness and agitation and worry and wanting and not wanting. And it tends to spawn, especially in spiritual circles, tremendous idealism about how we should be. And so easy to project onto teachers or onto other beings how they're the embodiment of all this and how you're somehow not measuring up. This is the mind, the comparing mind, the mind of conceit that the Buddha described as the mind that puts yourself equal to someone, above someone, or below someone. And just to pay attention to that as a flow of thinking. It's not the truth. It's just a mental fabrication. And this is a a balancing for some of our spiritual ideals and comparing to those ideals that causes us a lot of torment. It's called inner strength. If you start the day without caffeine and pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, If you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, drugs, if you can sleep without the aid of sleeping drugs, if you can do all these things, then you are probably the family dog. These versions of ourselves that play through our minds are such insults to our, our real nature. From Ed Brown, he says, when I started cooking, at Tassahara, This is the person who wrote the, a lot of the bread books and baker, bakery, great cook and Zen teacher. When I first started cooking at Tassahara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing seemed to work. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick dough, or for the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk. and to the mix and then blob the dough in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to, to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You could, you wrap the can on a corner of the counter and it popped open, then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan and bake them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally one day it came a shifting into place and awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh my word, I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. (laughs) Then came a moment, an exquisite moment, of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were wheedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. So as we sit together, I'd like to end this talk with a, a short poem from Rumi. It just speaks to this place where we really do live. He says, live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So let's sit for a moment. May all beings move beyond the field guidebook. May all beings have a wise relationship with the field guidebook. May all beings be filled with loving kindness and compassion. Thank you for going on that little journey with me. I appreciate your practice so much and the time that you're spending. As one person once used to say, all beings are cheering you on because your, your presence is a big help in this world. One moment that you stop believing, a tormenting story, you give a gift to yourself and all beings. Thank you.